Hey, listeners, we love and appreciate you. And our guest, who openly and honestly shares certain traumatic experiences. And due to the graphic details presented, we feel it wise and necessary to offer you a trigger warning. So if there is anyone underage around you at this moment, we advise you to listen at another time. What the fuckery is a psychic? A medium, clairvoyant, clairaudience, telepathy, precognition, fortune teller, channel, clear channel, extrasensory perception. The list goes on and on. Well, we're about to find out. I'm Nadej August, your host. If this is your first time with us, welcome. And here's what you can expect. What the Fuckery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know much about. A series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, experiences, or concepts we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss. Our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstreamed, but our guests, and sometimes experts, are in it, living their truth whether we accept them or not. And if, in that process, we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing. In that vein today, we have with us Kate Romero, who is a former talent manager, actress, former radio host, psychic, and holds a world title in arm wrestling. What a life you've led and are still leading an inspiration. She looks incredible. But today we're talking to the psychic version. Yes, I'm wearing (laughs) my psychic hat. I never take it off, actually. It's my main hat. Well, thank it gets you. me through everything. Wow, wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So you heard my intro where I pretty much listed all these different monikers or names or synonyms for what people think are as descriptions, as, as descriptions mm-hmm. for psychic. Mm-hmm. Would you help us navigate through understanding what all of that means? Yes. First of all, first and foremost, um, for me anyway, is I realized that I'm an empath. Uh, a little bit later in life I realized it. I knew that I felt my own feelings and I knew that I felt everybody else's feelings too. And when I realized that, oh my gosh, I'm an empath, I knew how to handle it. I knew to let other people's feelings flow through me so I could understand them and then let that go and then get back to my own feelings. And people who are empathic are wonderful healers. They're incredibly sensitive and they tend to attract malignant narcissists Mm. because they're the perfect couple. The empath wants to take care of, rescue, mother, uh, everybody. And a malignant narcissist is like a predator looking for a wounded bird. And the more vulnerable a person is, the more comfortable they feel in targeting them. So there's a lot of lessons that we're going to be speaking about today that come from everyone's ability to be empathic because every person on this planet is a psychic, is a medium, is an empath. Many are not in touch with it. Before This is great. Uh, I'm glad you said that everyone's a psychic. I've heard that, that we're all a little psychic. I've had what I think are psychic hits, but in fact are intuition. Is there a difference? Are these two things very similar or how does one tell the difference? That's a great question. I believe they're interrelated 
and I will tell you why. Um, when Here's the way when I coach people, I'm also a life coach, I forgot to mention that part. Um, when I coach people and they are clueless about their guidance system, I ask them to think of times where they had a moment of clarity. We all have. And we don't, it's like catching lightning in a bottle. You don't know how, to, how, did, how did it happen? Where did it come from? Where did it go? How do I get it back? Those moments of insight are coming from what I call the knower, which is the higher self. The higher self is our intuition, is our psychic self. And what I ask them to do is if they have a favorite name, what would they name their knower? And they'll think about it and I'll say, I don't know. And I'll say, well, if you knew what you wanted to name your knower, what would it be? And then boom, they'll come up with a name. And right then we named their knower, their higher self. My knower, higher self happens to be named Marvin Masters because I'm getting my master's degree from Marvin Masters. And Marvin speaks to me, has a wicked sense of humor. And I know, like I know, like I know when I'm stuck or feel stuck and we all go through that, I just say, Marvin, what should I do? What's the answer? And boom, it's right there, usually with some kind of a a joke to go along with it that makes me laugh because one of the greatest gifts we can afford ourselves is to learn to laugh at ourselves and our foibles and and our flaws and our downfalls because when we learn to laugh at that, we w- when we learn to laugh at whatever made us cry, we win. And, and, and feeling embarrassed about our flaws certainly has made many of us cry. So when we learn to laugh at that, then we, we win. We just do and has no more control over us. But the difference between um, intuition and being psychic is it's very, very small. It's very little. I think they're one and the same. That's why I believe every single person is psychic. Every single person has a a higher self. Even people who are mentally ill have a higher self. I don't know if you've come into contact with very many mentally ill people who are um, either being treated with medication or not, but they are some of the sharpest, shrewdest, most focused people you will ever run into. And it's almost like their higher self has run amok because Look at, look at the serial killers, how they get away with it. I just watched the Ted Bundy documentary <laughs> and all by myself, and it was terrifying. But he was brilliant. His, his cerebral cortex was so much smaller than a normal empathetic person's would be that he could have actually been considered incompetent to stand trial. But they didn't know that until after they'd studied his brain. They didn't know that his cerebral cortex they was didn't too know small. That, yeah. So that's the region where empathy lies yeah. and comes from? Yes, mm-hmm. empathy and the amygdala. And so some peoples are bigger or smaller than others, but, but every person on the planet has a higher self. It's just what they do with it that makes them who they are and creates their life experience. Okay, let's backtrack just a little bit. I have two questions. The first one is Marvin. When you call on your Marvin, (laughs) Marvin Masters, Mm -hmm. do you hear him or see him? How do you get the message per se? The message comes from every cell in my body. So you feel it? It, I feel it. I'm, I'm very hypersensitive. It's like all of my senses are turned up full blast. So, I, I mean, when my husband and I are walking down the street, I smell something probably a good six minutes before it reaches his nose. I hear something he can't hear. Um, I, can, I can see something he can't see, glasses or no glasses. Uh, it's just our senses are, are different. 
I don't know if it's a male-female thing or what, but I do know that, I mean, I can smell someone smoking a cigarette 10 cars ahead of me, and he doesn't smell it until we're right next to them. Out of curiosity, do you happen to be a kinesthetic learner as well? Would you say that kinesthetic, like you need to learn things viscerally, physically? So oh, when very you're an emotionally actor, connected, yes. Emotionally connected, yes. yes. When you were studying emotional. lines, you probably walked around a lot. I'll you tell never you sat what. still. Yeah, well, here's mm -hmm. the thing with me and acting. Um, I believe the words sit on top of the emotions. When you go below to the emotions, you set the words free and they become part of your embodiment and you can't say them wrong then. Because when you memorize the emotions, the words just come right out. And it's, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't realize, but it's really, it does, nothing has to be so hard. It has to be lived. Just live, just mm -hmm. live viscerally. Just, when I get a gut feeling about something, it's unshakable. And you know, when you're anxious, you can't be creative. And getting a gut feeling comes from creation. We're, we're creation and personified. We are creative beings. If, if we're not creating, we're stagnating. And creation comes from being present. When you're anxious, don't trust that decision. Don't sign any important documents. Don't take that phone call. You know, if something's very important, wait until you calm yourself down. And it takes a lot of awareness to understand when you're in a panic attack or when you're feeling anxious because some people just live from that place and they don't know any different. It's the water they swim in. So I'm hoping that this, this interview with you today will help people get more in touch with their own awareness and what it's like to be present and what that feels like and what it feels like to finally be in your skin and accept yourself for all that you are and all that you are not, warts and all. Because the one thing that makes you embarrassed about yourself is your greatest gift. So this is a perfect segue. Perhaps you want to tell us, how did you discover or uh, label yourself a psychic medium? What happens? Walk us through how that all happens. Well, I'll, I'll go way back. Um, when I was born to my family, I'm the middle child of seven children. We all have different fathers. I was the scapegoat. My mother gave me away to a, a stranger while my father was away on a work trip. And when he came back, she wouldn't tell him where I was. So he spent the following two years looking for me. He finally found me. When he did, all I would drink was soured milk. So apparently the people that had me neglected me. And my father brought me back to the family that didn't want me. And in the interim, while he was looking for me, he created a will that said if he were to die, that my mother needed to keep me in the family or she would not get his pension. So when uh, my, in the interim while my father was looking for me, he had created a will that said if my mother didn't keep me living with her under her same roof that she would not get his pension. So um, after he died, I ended up having to live with the family that didn't want me and it was like living with a lot of strangers. Um, and the abuse was so horrific in every sense of the term, um, physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, verbally, every way that you could think of. And to be an impressionable, impressionable child in the first place, the only God you know are your caregivers. And I don't recall the people who had me first, but I do remember visions of having a dirty diaper and crying in my playpen and, and nobody coming. And, and so I didn't really have a great experience of, of being loved or cared for. And so when my father died, uh, my mother, I was passed? three years old when my father died. 
And after he died, my mother took a lover by the name of Rocky. He was very tall. He had black hair that was wavy with a curl down the middle of his forehead, like Superman, and crystal blue eyes. And he was missing three fingers on the right hand. He said a cow bit them off. But he started molesting me when I was four. And I ran away my first time when I was five in the city of Detroit in the ghetto because it was safer in the streets than it was inside our home. Um, if my baby sister hadn't gone with me and started crying to go back, I, I don't know where I'd be today. But I did go back because she wanted to. And I ran away another, well, actually 13 altogether times. And the police always brought me back because my mother insisted or else she wouldn't get my dad's pension. So it was always about money, never about me being her daughter or caring about me at all. And I, I'm a survivor of a lot of family mobbing. My siblings were encouraged to do horrible things to me, and they did. I've been knocked unconscious more times than I can remember. Um, and still through all of this, it never broke my spirit. I knew I had to put my happiness on layaway until I got big enough and far enough away that I could take it out and use it. So I became invisible. I hid in dresser drawers when I was small enough to do that. I hid under the bed. Um, just there's so many things that, that I needed to do to protect myself as a small girl. And when I look back on it today, what a clever, smart child I was to, to build this armor inside of my body, this embodiment of armor that, that I had as a child to protect myself with. And I hid my intelligence. I hid my spirituality. I was born spiritually wide awake to a family who believed in violence and hate. And I believe in peace and, and love. And, and so I did not fit in at all for any reason with them. And so every time I ran away, they brought me back. And I, I learned to predict, premeditate what was going to happen to me when I walked into the room with these people. Because I never knew if I was going to get a fist in the face, a bottle over the head, a, a shoe thrown at me, or hit with a hanger, or or kicked out the window. I didn't know what was gonna to happen to me, so I would I would turn on all of my senses. And being a child, I, I couldn't articulate that. It's just what I had to work with, and I, I could feel it, and I was intensely present. I had to be to protect myself. And becoming so present to protect myself was, was one of my greatest powers. So you would know and see ahead of time what was waiting I saw for you it. on the other side of the I door. I saw it. And you were always accurate. I was always accurate. And if I didn't listen to my instincts, like stay behind the door one minute longer, and I just pop out, I would get smacked down. I would get obliterated. Um, I, I, I don't know how graphic I can be about this, but some of the horrible things that happened Listen, this to, is called what the fuckery. I'm okay, what the fuckery is this then? Let me <laughs> right, tell you exactly. this. I still puzzle over this. My mother had my older sister and my older brother strip me naked when I was, uh, I think, five. And they put me on the cold kitchen table, which was a Flamica table back in the, the 60s, 50s and 60s. And my brother held my legs apart while my sister held my arms down and my mother stood between my legs with a needle and thread and stuck me in my genitals until I cried myself unconscious. She did that so many times. It was her favorite way to humiliate me. And it, it did not break my spirit. But I'm telling you, I, I knew she was going to do it to me one morning when I woke up and she did. And there was nothing I could do to avoid it. I mean, so you see why I would run away. 
Um, and that was only one of the many things that happened to me. You know, her boyfriend would sodomize me and she would watch. She knew all about it. And let me tell you something. I have memory of choosing this family before I was born. I have memory of, of that. We all sat around the table with the masters and I wanted to incarnate to learn forgiveness. And my family members that were going to be my family were sitting there with me and they promised to make their hearts go blind so they could do things to me that would be unforgivable so that I could overcome the unforgiveness and become forgiving. And how I've accomplished you, it. How did you, it sounds like the four agreements, um, trying to find levity here because this is so heavy and I yeah. just feel like this should be what the fuckery is well, surviving child abuse. Yeah. But that's a whole different thing and I'm right. glad you're bringing that up. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you talk about this agreement, how did you get out and at which point in your life did you learn this lesson of forgiveness? I loved my family. No matter what? So through it Very all. much. And as they were beating me and hurting me, I would say, I love you, why are you hurting me? I love you while you were hurting me. Why are you hurting me? And they would hurt me more because they didn't feel worthy of love. They didn't feel worthy of my valuing them. And the more I did, the more they, they rejected it and the more they harmed me for it. But I still didn't stop. To this day, I love them all dearly. I just can't have them in my life because I would have to give up my backbone that I've earned through so much trial and error and prevailed over so many things. This backbone, I earned it and I will not give it up to have them in my life. And if I wanted them in my life, I would have to become subservient and I would have to go back to being the scapegoat. I am an escape goat now and I will stay that way. And if they wanna be in my life, then they need to behave humanely and they need to respect and honor and support me. How old were you when you left or got out or severed your relationships with them? Because sometimes it's the healthiest thing to do is to part ways with people well, who harm us. I didn't know the world had other people in it besides malignant narcissists. And as I was growing up, I didn't know that term. I didn't understand psychology. I just knew that I was looking at something that was very unusual and very harmful and hurt me quite a lot and I didn't know what to call it so I studied every book I could get my hands on while you were living with your family I would do it at school I how would, old were you at that point I was well I ran away at five the first time and then several more times as I was 12 14 15 16 and 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 many more times when I was in preschool I mean not preschool but grade school and when I turned 17 I ran away for the last time uh, because my mother's boyfriend Rocky came to me he knew my mother didn't want me so he came to me and said he was going to kidnap me and take me to Florida where it's legal to get married when you're 17 and he was planning to marry me and I would have rather died and I was working as a car hop at a place in New Lebanon, Ohio called The Toot Restaurant. And there was a man who was in my station every time I came to work. He was just sitting there in his gold Cadillac, 1964 gold Cadillac. And he had black hair and white teeth and blue eyes and chewed minty gum and he always smiled at me. And he'd always order, order a milkshake and tip me $5. So, you know, we were friendly with each other. And one day when I came to work after my mother's boyfriend said that to me, he goes, why are you so down? And I didn't have anything to lose, so I told him what happened. And he goes, oh, well, they can't make you come back again if, if we make a plan and I take you 
to Jackson, Tennessee, you lie about your age and I will marry you. It'll be platonic, it'll be a business deal. When you turn 18 in a few months, I will give you, give you an annulment and you'll be free for the first time ever. And that sounded like a good idea to me because I had no other options. So one day when I got home from high school, I took out the trash and I just kept walking and I met him down the street. And I was hoping he wouldn't be there and I was hoping he would be there. He was there. We drove through the night. We got to Jackson, Tennessee, waited for the courthouse to open, went in. I lied about my age. We got married. And as soon as we did, we, he took me to a bar, my first bar, and he ordered Golden Cadillacs, which is brandy and cream and nutmeg. And he drank a lot of them. And I had three and I wasn't a drinker. So we didn't know where we were gonna stay the night. We never discussed it. We didn't get that far. So he, I'd never seen him drunk and he was clearly drunk and he was cussing and he was mad and he didn't know where we were gonna stay. So we drove to a bad side of town. I learned later it was called a red light district where the prostitutes go, drug dealers. And he talked a motel uh, manager into giving us a room that smelled like urine and lilacs. and. He passed out on the bed and I went in the bathroom and threw up because I was nauseous. And I snuck into the other side of the bed and, and laid on it as far to the edge as I could in my clothes. And as soon as I put my head down, he was on me like a crazy man raping and beating me. And he raped and beat me for the following 18 months until I finally escaped from him to a domestic violence shelter where legal aid helped me get a divorce. And he told me, if you ever escape me, or tell anyone what I did to you, I will hunt you for the rest of my life. And for 44 years, that's what he did. And I've lived underground, P.O. Box. Um, it, it's very hard to be in the limelight when you're hiding. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's very hard to grow as a person when you've got an albatross around your neck called a, a stalker. Um, and he did hunt me for 44 years. And last May 31st, 2018, um, one thing led to another where he was on speakerphone in the courtroom from Dayton, Ohio, and I was filed, I filed for a restraining order and I got to read my 20-minute victim impact statement to the predator, the court, the judge, and afterwards the judge said, what do you think about that? And he said, I don't know what to think about that, but you know I'm tired, I don't wanna do this anymore. So I have my restraining order. He knows that I'm not afraid of him anymore, so that takes the fun out of stalking me. But I learned to be psychic, to know where am I safe, where am I not safe. Go, you know, and if I'm driving and something says turn down the street, even though it's not where I'm going, I will turn down that street. I will trust my instincts. I, I went out one night when I shouldn't have. My, my instincts stay, said stay home, you know, in your pajamas, it's raining, you're making chicken soup stay home. I didn't stay home because my mother called me and said, you should go out for New Year's Eve because she had so many. she knows best. Yeah, she knows best. And um, she said, you need to go out for New Year's Eve because if I was well enough, that's what I would do. Would you please do that for me? And I got all dolled up and was like the New Year's princess. And I went out and I, on my way, it was a church event. And on my way home, I got pulled over by the police and I had on a light up high heel shoes that were see-through plastic, um, hard plastic, and they were red, white, and blue. When I would walk, they would flash. Mm -hmm. So I'm driving and it looks like my shoes are flashing. I'm going, why are my shoes flashing? But it was the police behind me pulling me over. And there was like a four foot 10 female police officer and I'm five feet five and in my heels, I was maybe six feet tall. And she wanted to take me down. 
and the breathalyzer they gave me was broken. So they handcuffed me and took me to the jail. Uh, took my, I had on a tiara, of course, and she took that from me, handcuffed me, and on the way to jail, uh, they were driving erratically, and they were pulling people over on the way to jail, and the people would say they hadn't been drinking, and they would let them go, and I said, did you take me to jail because I admitting to have admitted to having a glass of champagne at 10 o'clock and they said yeah you never should have admitted it and so when we got there it was a full moon too <laughs> it was 2006 2007 New Year's Eve 2006 into 2007 and uh, got to the jail and their breathalyzer was broken I went I said give me a pee test so I went and I peed in the vial and she poured it out in the toilet and laughed I said, why did you do that? She goes, you didn't pee enough. And I'm like, what? And so I said, give me a blood test. So they took me to the lab and they stuck me six times. They couldn't get a vein. So there was no proof that I wasn't drunk. And she lied to the DMV. She cut up my driver's license. I got released the next day. I went to have my um, my interview with the DMV because I was about to lose my license for six months. And I went to see attorneys and they said they wouldn't take my case because there was no proof I wasn't drunk. And so I fought for myself as my own attorney with the DMV and I won. They said that the police officer's word was not credible, but I didn't trust my instincts to not go out, to that, not night. Go out that night. Yes, and I did it for my mother because I loved her so much no matter what she did to me. Is your mother still with us? No, no, she passed away. I, I finally realized that I'm not going to take the blame for what she did to me anymore. It was insanity to do that. And I, I stopped communicating with her right after that happened where I went out because she wanted me to. She did that all the time because she was sick and invalid and she had so many heart attacks. And I would do things for her. I'd go on hikes for her and call her from, from the top of a mountain and tell her what the view looked like. I mean, go hear country music, which I don't like, but she loves and let her listen on my you cell phone. You were being a good daughter. I was being a great daughter. Yeah. And, and I became the mother to my child, like the kind of mother I wished I had. So that's why I know I was a good mother and I am a good mother. I'm I mean, sure. I'm, I'm sure of that. But I learned to be psychic from self-defense, from self-preservation. So it started at that point. Yes. So now, when, when we read of your short bio, you've got psychic listed. So presumably this is something much like a radio host or as a former life talent coach. manager, a life coach. These are things that you've done, perhaps charged people for, yes. have called yourself an expert for. Yes. I'd like to focus on that um, section of sure. your life. But, but to give some background of yeah. how I got to be yes. who I am today, mm -hmm. And even if none of that happened to me, I would still be psychic. I would. Yeah. I just maybe would have found out a different way. Right. You referred to yourself uh, earlier as a psychic medium. Yes. How is that different from just being a psychic? A medium is a, is a person that spirits tend to be drawn to. Spirits know that you are vibrating at a frequency that they love electronics. Have you ever been in your room and the lights flickered? and you got a sense that somebody, a passed on loved one was with you and maybe the hair on the back of your neck stood up, trust that, it's right. true. Yeah. Whatever your thought was when it happened, that is what's true. When you doubt that, that's when you go off track. But when you trust, and it's like as a psychic and as a medium, whatever comes through me, even if I don't get what it means, it sounds like gobbledygook to me, I 
will tell the person what I'm getting, what's coming through, because if I don't, I'm ripping them off. If I don't, I'm ripping off the spirit. I'm not getting that message through. And one time a message came through about red socks. And the person said, I don't have any red socks. And it turned out it was the father took her to see the red socks play when she was a kid. And he was with her there. And that was that was their secret word, red socks, but she'd forgotten. Is there a certification process that you go through? At which point can you legitimately say, I'm a psychic medium and yes, I can channel your your grandfather who went on who's crossed over? My certification is certainty. Certainty, and it took me all I went through to have this much certainty. I was I I co-created something called quantum hypnotherapy, where I will use an HMI trained hypnotherapist because they all know everyone can be hypnotized. Not everyone's trained that way, but everyone can be hypnotized, just like everyone is a psychic, because that's what's so. And so I work with them, and while they're putting the person under hypnosis. I'm in the corner doing automatic writing about what their blocks are and what we need to install after we remove the blocks with their permission and agreement. And it's a one, it's a one time, two hour session. I've done hundreds and hundreds and I charge a fee, depends sliding scale. Um, it's, this is not a commercial, uh, but for everything under the sun, methamphetamine addiction, uh, 40 year chronic smoker, bedwetters, um, people who pull out their hair chronically, um, anxiety, uh, ir- irritable bowel syndrome, you name it, A to Z, I've, I've worked on it. And the person would just be returned to their factory settings with their permission and agreement. That's the key, permission and agreement, because you can heal in an instant. It's, it's with your agreement. And they would go off and they would, you know, over time, their life would just get right on track. Sometimes it happened instantly, and sometimes... It, they had to unpack because there was so much new information. So I've done hundreds and hundreds of those, thousands of life coachings, and the benefits have been incredible. And there's nothing more joyful for me than to watch someone's lights come on in their eyes. And what causes that is when they realize there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. With, with your mediumship, um, do you remember the very first time? So, okay, here's a better way to ask this. Do you... Uh, does a spirit speak through you as you or how does that happen for you in your body so say i'm your client and i want a reading is that the right way to say i want a reading about yes uh you know my grandpa passed away about 10 years ago yes how is he how would you what happens next well first of all i like to use cards and i will put the cards in my client's hands i would have them shuffle them thinking of the question that they have. And then I will pull three cards, one for the person who's asking the question, one for the higher self and one for the spirit they want to contact. And then I will see what comes out and then I will just get present. And sometimes I'll hold hands with the client and we'll just take three deep breaths down to our toes and breathe it out through our nose and just usher in the spirit and the spirit comes and we both feel it. I call it God bumps and the spirit is there and the question comes and I trust what comes through me no matter like I said if it makes no sense to me at all I say it and more often than not that person will go like oh my god that how did you know and it's like 
I don't know. It's just coming through me. And it does come through me in all of my senses. There isn't just one sense, clear audience, clear, it's everything. It's How just, is that different from being a channel? I am a channel. It's not different. You're channeling the spirits communication to the person who is seeking it. The audience lives inside of us. That's why this interview is taking place. There are people out there right now hearing this who are relating to this to such a degree that it could be life-changing. It could, it could save their life to know that, that there is hope. If I could get through what I went through, which is one of the reasons why I shared it with you and your listeners, if I could get through what I went through and thrive on the other, other side where joy was not predictable whatsoever in my life and to have this awesome, amazing life I have today, don't give up before the miracle. Know that if it could happen for me, it can happen for you. Know that because we are all connected, all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's why I can do what I do. And that's why you can do what you do. You are a radio host for a reason. Radio is all about frequency. You're vibrating at a very high level to be doing this work. And that's why we're talking right now. And the people out there who vibrate at a higher frequency know this in every cell. They're feeling it right along with us. Mm -hmm. I've heard of channels who are well-known. Uh, one that I've followed on uh, YouTube or have had a, I've read a couple of his books is Paul Selig, I think, or Selig. And he channels apparently a spirit, someone from uh, a spirit who uh, talks through him. The voice even changes. Uh, messages for humanity are shared. Mm-hmm. There are other channels too. Esther Hicks, Abraham. Right. Yes. Okay. That's different from what you do. Or is, do you have It's very that similar. Portion? Marvin Masters did for a while do channeling sessions in a different voice. Interesting. I just haven't done that in a while because he has become so much a part of my embodiment that I don't need to. But when he first made him, his presence known to me, that's the way he came out. How did you find him? Do you remember that day? I died. I was dead for 12 minutes. Okay. You're too much. <laughs> I've been through what a few things. What the fuckery? What the fuckery? Okay, hang on. Yes. So you die for 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Um, I was in a relationship with a malignant narcissist. Big surprise because I didn't know there were other people in the world. It's the water I swam you in. track what we know. Exactly. Right? What mm-hmm. I was raised by. And uh, his name was Ronnie. And I loved him so much. And he was a sex addict. And being a malignant narcissist, he didn't have any capability for empathy or compassion. And I did everything I could to get him to love me, just like I tried to get my mother to love me. I mean, there's the vicious cycle. But I didn't know it at the time that I was doing that. It's in hindsight, being 2020, I, I, I know all about it now. Um, I'm writing a book called How I Busted Out of My Genes, G-E-N-E-S. Of course. Um, and so Ronnie was cheating on me. We worked at this place called Crazy Eds in Deer Valley, Arizona, where... Johnny Carson would come and all the celebrities would come. It was very famous and and really a wonderful, good time. And I was cocktail waitress there. And uh, Ronnie was smitten with me because I was a new girl. And I avoided him, avoided him, avoided him. Um, And so uh, after I divorced the crazy man who raped and beat me, I went and joined the army so I could disappear and maybe have some protection. And while I was waiting to go on my delayed enlistment, I met Ronnie at this Crazy Ed's place. I wanted to make some money before I went into the army. And and I didn't want anything to do with him. And finally he won me over. Long story short, we were living together. People, people called us Romeo and Juliet because we were so in love. 
And then he started sleeping with our coworkers. The, when he went away on vacation to San Diego from Arizona, they all came to our house and gave me an intervention and said, Ronnie has been sleeping with all of us. We, we love you, we care about you, we feel awful about it, but we were all totally high partying and we did it. We want you to know what he's been doing behind your back. And I was like, okay, well, thank you. I was grateful. I wasn't surprised because I sensed it. And so when he came back, we went to, um, it's called uh, the Horny Toad, which is another outshoot of Crazy Ed's, which was in Cave Creek, Arizona. And he wanted to take me to dinner to tell me that I was the best girlfriend he could ever hope for and that he was the problem and he's very sorry and that that he's been a horrible boyfriend and we were drinking double pina coladas and playing foosball and eating dinner and laughing and it felt like old times and I thought, oh, maybe there's a chance for us. There really wasn't. But we, we partied till four in the morning and then he was driving an old catering van from Crazy Ed's. There were no seat belts, it's like 1960 uh, catering van, white, all banged up. And he, we take off down the road at Cave Creek. It's very rural, it's a full moon. And we're driving down the road and the curves are, are just treacherous and the canyon below is very deep. And he's reaching for his pack of cigarettes on the dashboard and I reach over and I go, let me help you. And he goes, fuck you, don't, don't help me. You're not my mother. And I'm like, oh my God, he just went snap, like switched into this awful person. And then as he was reaching for the cigarettes I had, had taken, he pulled the steering wheel and pulled us right off the cliff and we rolled 11 times down the cliff and hit the canyon floor. And while we were rolling the bucket seats, I was not in a seat belt and I was just sort of weightless in between the seats while the, while the things in the back of the truck were spinning and spinning and we finally hit the canyon floor and it, and it lands on the side, the driver's side. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, it's gonna blow up. I learned in high school in the, in the videos, it's gonna blow up. And I said, get us out of here. So he stood up with one arm, he went bam, and he pushed on the door and it flew off like a Frisbee. I scampered out and I clawed my way up the side of that mountain and I looked down and I saw the van way down there below, and I thought, oh my God, I must be dead. So I laid on the side of the road, I put my arms across my chest, and I, I crossed my feet, and I, I died. And I, when, I, when I remembered anything else, I was about 25 feet above myself, I saw old people out in flannel pajamas, and they were crying in their house coats, and it was four in the morning, and, and I saw Ronnie crying over my body, and the paramedics ripped open my shirt and they're giving me cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And there's this rookie um, paramedic who's trying to keep track writing things down and he, he dropped his pencil and it went underneath a seat. And so he scampered to get a, a pen to finish writing. I saw all of that. And then they, after trying so hard to get me to come back, I didn't, so they called my death, you know, dead on the scene. And they carted me into the back of the truck and Ronnie wanted to ride with me back there. So he did, and on the way, and my head was covered up, and he was saying, oh my God, he called me whammy. Whammy, whammy, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I love you so much, please don't die, please don't die, please come back, please come back, and I'm, I'm thinking, man, this feels so awesome where I am. I, I felt no shame, no guilt. It was, it was incredible as, it, as if I'd become one with the universe. And it was like, you know how when you're underwater, your hair just kind of floats out uh, around you? That's the way it was. I had a 
incredibly long hair and my hair was floating out around me and I just was tr trying to tell the people down there, stop crying, stop crying. I love it here. It's wonderful here. Just, it's, it's okay. And when Ronnie said, please come back one last time, I, I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe he does love me. And shoom, right back into my body I came. And there was nothing more painful that from than that in my whole lifetime. It was like putting the entire universe back into a tiny suitcase. And I just said, oh, my head hurts. And Ronnie just freaked out. He's like, oh my God, oh my God. And he starts pounding on the window for the paramedics to pull over. She's back, she's back. They pull over, they come check me out, take me to the hospital. I'm in there for three days under observation. They don't know how I died or how I came back. But I died because of love and I came back because of love. Hmm. That is what I know. And there was no medical reason for either. And then two weeks after, Ronnie took me back to the, the fire department and I spoke to the fire captain and I said, I wanted to tell you thank you for all you did to help me. And uh, by the way, is truck 33 in the parking lot and the, the rookie paramedic was there. I don't remember their names, but... I told him the story of what I saw, and I said, I saw you drop your pencil. I can show you where it is. And he's like, really? And I go, yeah. So we go out to the truck. I reach under the bench, and I pull out his pencil. I go, here you go. He turned white as a sheet. And the captain said, you know, when I started this work, I was agnostic. I didn't believe in anything beyond what I could see. But after 35 years of doing this work and stories like this, I know there's something more. So when did Marvin show up? Marvin showed up, he came back with me. But he didn't speak up to me until probably 10 years later. And I felt differently when I came back. I left Ronnie after after we went to the fire station. I just I just knew that that there His was purpose was done. It was it. Yeah. That was it. He was never going to change because the honeymoon period wore off and he went back to being who he was before because he's wired that way you know there's that wiring so I I moved on to San Diego and I got three jobs immediately I was thriving and uh, it wasn't until 2006 that Marvin first started speaking through me after I'd done probably 150 quantum hypnotherapy sessions because when you're healing somebody else you get healing too sure. when that person gets complete you get more complete yourself it's it's reciprocal so Marvin just started speaking one day? He just started or? speaking through me. I was talking to my hypnotherapist that I worked with. We were very close, very good friends. We both had one foot in the unseen, you know, and, and one foot in the physical. And we knew there was something more to life. You know, I knew it more than him maybe, but, but I was just talking to him. And I talked to him about Marvin. And then my voice shifted, and I just started spouting wisdom at him. And I told him that he was a sex addict and that the things he were, was doing that he thought were healthy and normal were in fact keeping him from growing. And he was blown away. He said, how did you know I do those things? I said, I know what you need and what you need is not that. And if you want to grow beyond that, you need to find other things about yourself to fall in love with. And it changed his life instantly and forever. And Marvin, I mean, he would have me sit and do channeling sessions with with people who were hard cases and marvin would do the work and i mean marvin spoke like that until marvin became just i just trusted that marvin is me and i am marvin mm, so that was what you just talked about earlier the intuition and having this higher yes. self knowledge we all have it you know it's just honing it just honing trusting trust 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 you can 
you can trust. And, and I'll share my, my quote that I, I live by. Uh, it's original. It's like, cost you nothing to believe. Cost you everything if you don't. Believing is free. You can have all you want, and it doesn't have any calories. Yeah. And if you don't believe, you know, if you don't believe in magic, you're never going to see it. And I can sit here and tell you right now, magic is real. It's all perception. And if you reframe any incident in your life and change the way you look at things, the things you're looking at will change. Wonderful. I think on that note, it's a wrap. Oh. This was amazing. Well, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, uh, so moral of the story, we can all, we are all psychic. We all have yes. that ability. Yes. Actually, come to think of it, the concept of being, it's not a concept. When you're an empath, it means you have a lot of empathy. Yes. You tend to pick up on what other people feel. Yes. A lot of us don't know that or recognize it, like taking on someone else's sadness and assuming it's our own depression. Mm -hmm. It's my own. It's not the other person. How do you keep yourself clear and clean of recognizing, or should I say, if there are people out there listening who struggle with that, who feel that I feel other people's energies too much, how would they protect themselves or learn to draw that line? Understood. You said a word that's very interesting to me. Recognize. Recognize for me means recognize. To remember what you already know, but you forgot you knew it. Recognize. Recognize. Another word I love is realize. See it with your real eyes. And you will recognize. Um... When I understood that I was an empath, I knew that I could let the feelings come through me like Tai Chi. Just let that person's feelings come through me like Tai Chi or I would get sick because I was doing all this healing work and I had to take on their feelings. I chose it, but I couldn't take them on without also letting them go or I'd be too full and I wouldn't be a channel. I would be just too full to be a channel. So when you feel like you're overwhelmed, emotional overwhelm is the crappiest feeling in the world. And emotional overwhelm happens oftentimes because we forget our goodness. We forget our goodness. And when we forget our goodness, that's, that's when everything gets clogged up and we're stuck. When we remember our goodness, then whatever feelings we've picked up, negativity from around us, it just flows right out of us. And if you do some breathing exercises, you can actually take a deep breath down to your toes, see the negativity leaving you as you exhale and the positive golden light coming in as you inhale. And that clears you, that clears you. And I believe that we all are empathic or we wouldn't cry over dog food commercials or feel bad when a loved one dies or someone's crying. I mean, some people are just wired weirdly, so they don't have any empathy or compassion, and we call those sociopaths. Um, but still, they can mimic. But everybody has the ability to speak from their higher self and to listen from their higher self. And, and I also know and believe that when we listen to our intuition, it's God speaking to us or universe speaking to us. And when we pray, it's us speaking to God or the universe. And a prayer without action is no prayer at all. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. You're welcome. Anything else you'd like us to share, discuss? 
I'm just happy. keep keep believing. Too. Keep believing your pure goodness. We're images of God, source energy, creator, whatever you want to call it. We are images of that higher being. And we live each day for that higher being. And when you know that you're living this day for that presence, you can't do it wrong. You're going to be at your best. Nothing's going to be in the way of your greatness. Just keep believing and letting that soak in. We are goodness. We are Godness. Believe it.